Get off my world. Get off my world. Get off my world. Listeners, and welcome back to Get Off My World, a podcast about Doctor Who. I'm Pat. I'm Joshua. And I'm Kelvin. And we are three nerds and the occasional guest who love the classic Doctor Who series and like the new series, too. (laughs) So we're going to take you through five rounds rapid and uh, let you know what's great and not so great about our favorite show. And this week, we're joined by very special guest, Jeff Tidball. Hey, thank you for having me down. Hello, Jeff. Well, uh, as you know, uh, we like to start all of our shows with something we call temporal grace. We can get a little bit uh, curmudgeonly about the show that we love, and so we want to start on a positive note. Uh, Kelvin, do you have something positive for us this week? Yes, I am still reading Doctor Who comics, and I just wanted to say that I enjoyed the 12th Doctor uh, collection, Terror Former. One thing I liked about it is that it's set in India, and it involves like both like medieval era India and like future India, which is uh, I think cool because that's a thing like you can do in the comics that you can't really do in the show so much, and uh, they do a really good job of capturing the Twelfth Doctor's voice. I think I like your new role as the comics whisperer on this <laughs> yeah. podcast. It's been about four episodes now that you've uh, told us about new Doctor Who comics that we'd otherwise be unfamiliar with. Yeah, I still haven't read that third Doctor one, which is super embarrassing because it's drawn by Christopher Jones, is a mutual friend of ours. Yeah, well, he hasn't given us free copies. But I'm just, I, I always wait for the trades anyway, and I, the trade for the third Doctor one has got to be coming out pretty soon here. Give it time. <laughs> yeah. Jeff, do you have a temporal grace for us? Well, yeah, so I, as part of my homework for the for coming on the podcast and talking, I was watching uh, Deadly Assassin this afternoon, and so it, that was just, and it worked naturally, because I'm wildly unsupervised, so I'm sitting there in my office with my headphones on, um, you know, watching it on a DVD, and so uh, luckily I've, I have not switched over to my new laptop, which does not have any kind of port for the insertion of digital media whatsoever, but... Um, so it was fun to be able to sit at work and just watch TV, which is not something that, that normally happens for me. But also it was really nice to have the opportunity to watch something that I would probably not otherwise watch. It's really easy, even though there's so much media to watch or to read or to see in a theater or 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 even more widely, if you're going to see stage, if you're going to go out and see comedy, whatever, it's really easy because there's so much of it to watch one kind of thing only and to delve deeply into that and and limit your media worldview. And so it was really nice to, A, sit at work and watch TV, <laughs> but also to see something that I would not otherwise see and get a chance to appreciate it and know that I was going to get a chance to talk about it. Very nice. Joshua? Last week, I went to Barnes & Noble and picked up a copy of Power of the Daleks, which just came out here in the United States on DVD. But that's not really my temporal grace. I have yet to watch it, and we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very excited to watch it, though. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was purchasing it, I went up to the counter, and there was a, a pretty uh, nice 
young, maybe 20-something-year-old uh, woman working the cash register, and she immediately lit up, and she was like, oh, Doctor Who, who's your favorite doctor? And she was clearly just super excited about Doctor Who, and I realized that I still have this weird old-school thing that I cannot kick, that I am literally startled when I meet someone who isn't instantly recognizable as a Doctor Who fan. Because to me, yeah. I, I grew up in a time where you, you could pretty much tell. there was the, <laughs> We couldn't integrate seamlessly into society. You would not ever Who's be Who's the weird guy with the surprised. scarf and the beat-up hat who yeah. keeps coming to class? I don't know. So I was a little like, uh, okay, I, I, I need to figure out how to interact with you now. Um, and, and I said, you know, I like all the doctors in different ways. I was fairly diplomatic. And then she's like, oh, my favorite is either the fifth. And I was like, oh, hey, this, this strange gap kind of closed. And I said, hey, there's a 20-something who likes the fifth doctor. She said, or maybe the ninth. And that's kind of an, oh. an odd new series choice, too. So that kind of gap closed again. Yeah. But then she got really excited and rolled up her sleeve and said, all me and my girlfriends got silence marks on our arms indicating which is our favorite doctor. And she shoved it in my face. Gap opened again. I was like, okay. Nice. Where, where are we? But she had chosen nine, in case you're wondering. And oh, she cool. had nine tattooed silence slash marks. Where were these girls when I was I 20 know, years old? Yeah. And that was the thing, because suddenly I felt like, is, is it creepy? 24 years in the future, yeah. apparently. <laughs> well, I mean, usually whenever I, I do something Doctor Who related and some young person says, oh my God, you're into Doctor Who, and it's like, I brace myself because it's going to be nothing but 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. Yeah. <laughs> which uh, is, you know, I, I, I'm, I again, I'm not as anti-10 as, as you and Pat tend to be, but there's only so much I can say about the 10th Doctor. I'm an older guy and, and a dad, so I don't know if it's awkward to say, uh, hey, listen to my podcast, and also, can my son have your phone number? <laughs> <laughs> he loves the 5th Doctor. Where, where are you going? <laughs> don't call your manager. <laughs> Here, check out these pictures of my son I have in my wallet. <laughs> And not being a parent, I don't know if that would be appropriate, but I could maybe guess. Um, Probably not. Consensus seems to be no on the table. Uh, so for My Temporal Grace, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't uh, say something about the late John Hurt, who just died a few weeks ago. Um, one of my favorite actors from well before his appearance on Doctor Who, um, but of course now that he's established as the War Doctor, he's firmly um, embedded in our, 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 our geeky subject matter here. So... Uh, for my temporal grace, I just want to appreciate his long, very varied career. Uh, and I thought about, oh, we could talk about him in The Naked Civil Servant. We could talk about him on I, Claudius and The Elephant Man or Alien or any number of things. But I wanted to single out one performance that maybe people don't know of very well, which is as the lead stone-cold, creepy assassin in John Stephen Frears' 1984 film The Hit. Uh, where he is tasked with escorting a uh, mob snitch to be executed in Spain. Uh, and the mob snitch is played by my other fave, Terrence Stamp, wow. who I still want to be the doctor one of these days. I think the ship has probably sailed on that, but I, we live in hope. Uh, it also has uh, uh, Laura Del Sol, the ubiquitous Fernando Reyes. Uh, Fernando Ray, if you've ever seen a movie 
filmed in Spain in the 20th century. You've probably seen probably seen Fernando Rey and also uh, Tim Roth in his theatrical oh, wow. film debut, uh, Music by Eric Clapton. This is an excellent movie, wow. and not many people know about it. The Hit by Stephen Frears, 1984. And that is my temporal grace. Okay, now comes the next segment in our podcast in which we subject our guest, Jeff Tidball, to the mind probe. No, not the mind probe. Yes, Yes, the the mind mind probe! (laughs) And this is just when we uh, brill Jeff mercilessly about his life and, and... I've what always, have you? I've always hated mercy, so <laughs> okay, that that fits. And we are very anti-mercy here. Jeff, if if you would, will you please tell us who the heck you are and what you're doing here? Yeah, right on. Um, so I played D and D for the first time in sixth grade and thought that was the very greatest thing that had ever happened in the history of ever. Uh, and had decided, like, by the next year that I was going to be a game designer, and that was just going to be the thing. Um, So, like, just played games like a lunatic all through high school and college, and there was no formal training for that whatsoever, so I wound up with a relatively bog-standard English degree. But was was super fortunate in that I um, was tied into the local gaming community in the Twin Cities and found out that a local publisher called Atlas Games was looking for someone to do essentially editorial PR drudge work and like write press releases and do things like that. But that was my end, so I managed to get hooked in. And that was before I had even graduated from Hamlin. And so managed to get in and and start doing that thing that I had always wanted to do almost by accident before I was really, really trying to do it. Even though I had done freelance writing and so on, but managed to to get into game design that way and just start doing this thing that I really, really loved to do and and carried on. So I'm here, I think. I think I'm here. Because um, one of the recent games that I've done is called uh, Time Clash, which is a Doctor Who game that is published by Cubicle 7. Uh, and got to know those guys at a Gamma trade show a couple of years ago. Um, and they came to me and they said, that we're thinking about doing another Doctor Who card game. Would you like to pitch us some ideas for that? And that's how that's how that project started out. And you're not fundamentally very knowledgeable about Doctor Who, is that right? Right. Oh, that is absolutely true. I will I will cop immediately to it. I've got some experience adapting other properties for games, and I think that's one of the things that made it even conceivable that I would attempt to pitch them some ideas for this and think that I could do a good job at it. Like I said, I come from kind of a game design background, and I've worked on role-playing games and card games and board games. Um, I used to work at Fantasy Flight Games, and one of the games that I worked on there was a Horus Heresy board game that that's based on the Games Workshop Warhammer 40,000 property. And so adapting a miniatures game to a board game is is a challenging thing. And it has all of the same challenges, really, that adapting anything does. Like adapting a novel to a feature screenplay, you you find that the fans of those novels will yell up and down about all the things that were left out. But can you imagine what a screenplay would be like if it had literally... I mean, it would be six or seven hours long, right? The Harry Potter fans who were all up in arms that every single thing was not included. Like, do they really want to watch every single thing? I, I guess My they do. wife and daughter do, yes. <laughs> but, but that's not... I guess adaptation, I think, is making those choices about what's in and what's out and in a game design it's what level of abstraction are you going to use to approach that source material 
Do you actually get criticism, I mean, personally, as the game designer from, like, a, a, a <laughs> fan of the property? Like, you miss this essential part of Doctor Who or Warhammer or whatever you're adapting? Not really. Not often. But that may also be because I go to the places where the gamers are talking about it rather than that the fans of the subject matter are talking about it. So I'll get all kinds of criticism about how it is an awful game <laughs> and how it makes no sense to do it this way and how we did not have fun for X, Y, and Z reasons. And it's, it's like, so that's fine, right? Everybody can't like yeah. the game that you did. But the the nice thing is, is that I'll also get positive feedback and that's really nourishing for a creator, right? Like, I got an email completely out of the blue about Horace Heresy, about a guy who was going to get back together with his college friend, and they were going to game all weekend, and they were going to play eight or ten games, and they had a list of what they were, and the first one that they played was Horace Heresy, and then they played it seven more times that weekend and didn't bust out any of the other ones. So, like, for all of the, I hate your game, you did it wrong this way and that way, and how could you be such an idiot, there's also positive stuff that's really cool and feedback to get like that, so so that's yeah. Great. I think I, I'm aware of a few people who play the Battlestar Galactica tabletop game pretty mm-hmm. pretty avidly, and I don't think they've seen or are all that familiar with the actual show. That's yeah. another one that is a pretty uh, abstracted version of yes. the show. Like it has yeah. it has it adapts elements of like betrayal and who's who. Yeah, but it does not attempt to be a plot point by plot point telling of an episode. No, it's just anything. this this grim descent into <laughs> inevitable defeat. Right on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's sort of the essence of the TV show. Yeah, I yeah. think uh, Corey Kanicki mm-hmm. really uh, captured that fundamental element of the TV yeah, show. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Time Clash a little bit. Sure. Um, so, Cubicle 7, you said, approached you mm-hmm. uh, with the idea of doing a Doctor Who card game. What was the process of adaptation like? Like, what? How did you distill... Uh, so, for people who don't know, uh, the, the base set, which came out somewhere around Christmas, I yeah. got a copy for Christmas, uh, is the Peter Capaldi Doctor with Clara versus... Daleks and Davros in a in a card game format, but I know there's going to be further uh, mm-hmm. further expansions to this. So how did you uh, how did you approach the subject matter? So one of the first things that I kind of decided I wanted to to do in my pitch, honestly, was not related to Doctor Who at all. One of the things that frustrates me sometimes when you're graphically laying out a board game is you have to choose one of the players that it faces, mm-hmm. right? Because a, game board just faces in one direction and that's like always kind of annoying because then there's somebody who's got to read the whole thing upside down okay so I wanted to not have a game like that and so that was part of the initial inspiration was to create a table setup that was player agnostic and so and you can start any creative thing anywhere like the initial inspiration can come from anywhere and you start building out from that so that was the initial idea at the center of this one and so that suggested a round kind of table layout And then looking at what is in Doctor Who, what is central to it, right? Obviously, there is a Doctor, there is a TARDIS, which is super critical, there are companions that are super critical, Um, there is some enemy, always, that is trying to do something nefarious, or maybe not always, I don't know, you guys are the experts in that, so... (laughs) Yeah, um, in the next episode, you can be telling everybody about how ridiculous it was to make such a crazy assertion. But <laughs> and then like it's a it's a time travel kind of thing, and so the the setting of it seemed critical to me. So I set up a kind of a round board that breaks apart into three arcs that encircle a uh, coin in the middle, 
So that was the other bit of gameplay genesis that I had. I wrote this article for a uh, Kobold Press book that makes the argument that a good game can break down into acts the same way that a screenplay or a stage play can break down into acts. And not that those are important for the narrative or the story that the game is trying to tell, but the way you feel about the game at any given point in it should be like rising action or extended conflict or like, I am about to win. Mm -hmm. And so that those correspond to that. So I wanted to make that explicit in this game because I thought that that would fit well with the fact that it's a TV show, right, which is an act-based sort of thing. So the game has an explicit build-up and an explicit end game where you're supposed to feel different ways. Am I laying the groundwork or am I about to try to win? So that status token sits in the middle of the table and tells you what part of the game it is. And then these three arcs represent uh, the companion and the enemy and the time period that you're in. Each one of those arcs has a different ability, and the way you activate that is by moving the TARDIS pawn around. So the uh, enemy players will generally want to activate the enemy arc. The doctor player or players might want to activate the companion arc or the time arc, kind of depending. And then you play cards onto these arcs and make stacks in the course of the game. So there's, there's different parts of gameplay there, but those are what I think the fundamental things are, and that's kind of... Those were, were all the parts that got built out when I was conceiving, I guess, of, of how I thought it should be and how the things that existed in the source material could be an interesting game. My wife and I played it. Uh, I got a copy for Christmas from my mm-hmm. sister. Uh, my wife and I played it several times and enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, she, I think, beat me every single time, which is not, <laughs> uh, not totally unusual. Uh, some of the things that were notable about it were... Uh, how do you even put this? There are kind of cascade effects that go on on individual cards where mm-hmm. you, you highlighted the, the doctor's quips as a, a certain category of card that like this, and it'll have a quote from Peter Capaldi on there, and that might chain with some other effect that's in play on one of the arcs or whatever, or give a companion a special ability. Uh, where am I going with this? I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. I, I think it definitely built out in the way that you're describing. There's nothing worse to my mind than a tabletop game that seems like it can just go on interminably. When is this going to end? Uh, the Mon- Monopoly being the classic example. Sure. Uh, but this had a rising uh, suspense effect and then eventually flips over to the end game and then somebody's going to win fairly quickly after that. And the goal was also to create a structure where it was okay for a game to go really fast. And so the game is, is intended to be played in best of three or best right. of five matches. Because once you get to the end game, the game can end very precipitously. Usually when the doctor wins. Because the doctor usually, it seemed to me, wins in a story by having some crazy plan that works. But so the game can end very precipitously, but that's not very satisfying from a gameplay standpoint. If you've invested an hour in the game and now somebody's just going to win immediately, right? That's that's not fun for gameplay. But with match play, that works super well if the individual games are short. So did you have to do specific Doctor Who research for the details of it? You, you mentioned the quip cards and quotes from the Doctor. So I watched a bunch of the of the recent series, right? So I just started with where they picked up in what two thousand three or six or wherever the new ones start. Help, yeah. help, two thousand five. That's very yeah. good. So I started watching with those because that's what their their licensed material is based most closely on, or that's what it seems like the BBC wants to see on the outsides of their boxes and yeah. so on. But if I had watched all of those before beginning to design a game, I would be starting to design a game now. 
Um, so I just mixed it up, right? Going back and forth between watching episodes and building out more more stuff. The other thing is, is that my TV watching in my regular life is that my wife and I love to watch programs together, but we have time to like maybe watch one episode of something a night. And if she does not want to watch Doctor Who, it is not being watched in that slot in our house. So I was watching these episodes like on flights and stuff, right? Anytime I was going on the road, I would watch four episodes on the flight from here to Los Angeles or whatever. So you you were being paid to watch Doctor Who. I was being you paid to watch Doctor Who. That's the fantasy of many people listening to this podcast. <laughs> I can probably actually go back because since I I'm mostly self-employed, I keep pretty detailed records of how much time I spend working on things, so I can decide if that was a terrible decision or not, and could probably work out how much I was paid per hour to watch Doctor Who. And now it's our next round, Wonderful A-Functionalism. And Pat has something a little special in honor of Valentine's Day. I do, Josh. You know, uh, a few weeks ago, you made us talk about Star Wars. So this week, by God, I'm going to make us talk about English metaphysical poetry. (laughs) Fair enough. So usually for Wonderful A-Functionalism in the past, uh, Kelvin or I have written parodies of famous English poems to fit into the universe of Doctor Who. And that, that was my intention. But in my research, I ran across Andrew Marvel's famous poem, To His Coy Mistress, from the 1660s. Now, I've read this poem before, but it's been many years. And as I was reading it again, I realized this is just a wonderful poem. It's kind of the baby it's cold outside of the mid-17th century. <laughs> Uh, But I couldn't improve on it by making a parody version of it. And it's probably because we were talking to the Seva team a few weeks ago about how any particular work of fiction can be framed, like their Astronaut Wife songs, uh, if you think about it in a Doctor Who context. Like their song Pedestal could be framed as Grace talking to the Eighth Doctor in the TV movie, I was looking at Andrew Marvel's poem as something that Peter Capaldi's doctor might say to River Song during those 24 years that they spend together before her death. This is a stretch, obviously, but because it's Valentine's Day, I'm going to be unusually sincere, and for all of those lovers out there, I'm just going to read to you Andrew Marvel's To His Coy Mistress, one of the great poems of the English language. Had we but world enough and time, this coyness, lady, were no crime. We would sit down and think which way to walk and pass our long love's day. Thou, by the Indian Ganges' side, should rubies find... I, by the tide of Humber, would complain. I would love you ten years before the flood. And you should, if you please, refuse, tell the conversion of the Jews. My vegetable love should grow vaster than empires and more slow. An hundred years should go to praise thine eyes and on thy forehead gaze. Two hundred to adore each breast, but thirty thousand to the rest. An age at least to every part, and the last age 
should show your heart, for, lady, you deserve this state, nor would I love at lower rate. But at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near, and yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Thy beauty shall no more be found, nor in thy marble vault shall sound my echoing song, then worms shall try that long-preserved virginity, and your quaint honor turn to dust, and into ashes all my lust. The grave's a fine and private place, but none, I think, do there embrace. Now, therefore, while the youthful hue sits on thy skin like morning dew, and while thy willing soul transpires at every pore with instant fires, now let us sport us while we may, and now, like amorous birds of prey, rather at once our time devour than languish in his slow-clapped power." Let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life. Thus, though we cannot make our sun stand still, yet we will make him run. And our next round is Special Topics Dalek. And today, our special guest, Jeff Tidball, is going to give us a topic to discuss. Jeff? So I obviously have done this adaptation of Time Clash, and so I'm interested in finding out what you guys think about adaptation in general. And I, it, it seems like that's very interesting, even inside of Doctor Who, especially since you brought a comic book that you talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Do you consider that primary material or is that an adaptation and how does that look around all of the different pieces of Doctor Who fandom? And there are a lot of different pieces and a lot of different yeah. mediums so, in oh, Doctor like Who. What's, what's primary? I mean, generally speaking, I think most people consider obviously the TV show Just the, the yeah. primary mm-hmm. source. All of it? Like, are the Christmas episodes less primary, or are they... I think they're all considered equally primary. If you're talking from, like, a canon point of view, then yeah, all TV shows happened, and it's up to various nerds and executive producers to try to make it all fit together. (laughs) I certainly have a lot of headcanon moments where I'm like, well, I think what really happened here was maybe not literally what you saw or something, but, but that's just me trying to... Make something that irritated me not irritate me. <laughs> I think but. in a lot of ways uh, I'm pretty relaxed toward the idea of canonicity and adaptation when it comes to Doctor Who because it's such this enormous universe of self-contradictory material that mm-hmm. anybody could make a good case for, as you did, like we're going to, in Time Clash, we're going to uh, dial in on these very few specific things with this particular Doctor versus these particular enemies, and we're going to uh, highlight these elements of the show. With something, let's say Harry Potter, for example, where mm-hmm. there are seven canonical books, I think the idea um, inherently is more rigid about what could exist in that universe and what you can adapt from it to make it feel like Harry Potter. But as as many of the Doctor Who novelists have done at various occasions, you could just kind of write whatever you want 
and then put Doctor Who in it somewhere, and it might just feel like Doctor Who anyway. And like Pat said, some of that spirit of anything goes comes from the TV show itself. We won't go into detail now because we're going to talk about the Deadly Assassin in the next round, but take that for example. That pretty much contradicts so many things from the 10-plus years before that episode came out. So uh, there, were, there was a sort of spirit that if, if you're in charge of Doctor Who uh, as an executive producer or a script writer, that you're going to just tell what's the best, most interesting story to you in the moment and continuity be damned. Um, and so I think that is adopted a lot in, in other mediums. I think because newer properties are more carefully controlled for continuity, uh, the new series is a little more careful with it than the old series. Well, and I'd also di- uh, direct our listeners to maybe go back and listen to our bonus episode one, where we had Scott Glancy interview Ray Winninger, who was one of the writers on the facet Doctor Who RPG back in the day, because Ray had a lot of interesting things to say about the Wild West of adaptation back in the day. He wrote uh, a few adventures and also the Cyberman source book for FASA. And at the time, it was a little like you're describing, Jeff, where he's just kind of watching whatever episodes are available, but there are far fewer of them available back in the day, and he just had to invent tons of things about the Cybermen and their history, which wound up in the, uh, the published product that have no bearing or no resemblance to anything that actually occurred on screen and have in various kind of subterranean ways infiltrated into later Doctor Who mythology because it was just something as a 18-year-old kid or something he made up right. <laughs> talking about the, the Cybermen. But then later, I know that, is it is it Mongoose that does the new RPG? I forget, but whoever does the new Doctor Cubicle Who... Cubicle 7 also. Oh, yeah, it's also it's Cubicle one, 7. one yes. umbrella license, I think, that they Sorry, I was thinking Paranoia. Yes. Yeah, uh, they've got yeah. Paranoia. So, uh, Cubicle 7, yes. They, um, I know, had to pulp one of their earlier runs of the Doctor Who RPG when the Doctor regenerated from Tenet to Matt Smith. They, oh, sure. The yeah, BBC forced them to do that. And this was one of the ways of ensuring the branding now. And so one of the ways, apparently, from the BBC's point of view of ensuring what Doctor Who is and how you adapt it is to make sure that it's contemporary, it's up-to-date. They'll refer to the earlier Doctors, but they want their current products to be the current Doctor. What Are there other adaptations that even outside of Doctor Who that you guys think are especially good at doing the work of taking something that was once in one form and merging it into another form in a way that is really faithful to the source material, but is also, or or inside Doctor Who for that matter. Uh, The first thing that comes to my mind is (laughs) some of the novelizations of the Halo video game. Yeah. Those were surprisingly good and very in-depth, and they they felt like novels. It didn't feel like... um, I, you know, like the, the video game event A, then you go to event B, and then right there was background about the Master Chief and like, um, which is something a novel has to have. Like yeah, it's got to have background about its protagonist. Yeah, it, it, it kind of wound up being almost like <laughs> Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game, but with like a like a physical genius, not a mental genius. Mm-hmm. It was just really good, solid military science fiction. I mean, it was it was a great. There were great books. I really loved them. But I'm getting way. I'm talking about stuff that no one here knows what about. Do you guys feel like the the fact that the Doctor regenerates and becomes different over and over and again, it, it almost winds up being an adaptation of itself over time? Or is that not an on-point analysis? I think that's a very good observation. It, it, it allows you to almost make the lack of continuity 
continuity. <laughs> <laughs> right on. It's Re- reboots con- are built into the system. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with the way television programs were made back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s and how they're made today because uh, now I think there's a, a far much more awareness It's probably self-evident, I guess, uh, on the part of the showrunners that people will have seen the earlier programs, that they'll be aware of them, uh, and that they have to somehow be part of a Doctor Who tradition. They have to build off that. Whereas back in when we talk about Deadly Assassin, we'll go into the history of it a little bit more. But Robert Holmes is very free to just create totally new things and disregard stuff from earlier in the continuity. And that was uh, that was not unique to him. He was uh, That was happening essentially every season. Because there were no repeats and there were no VHS tapes. He was All he had to do battle with is, is the vague memories of longtime viewers. Right, like not, not only no VHS tapes, but there's no binge-watching. Even when, when tapes become a thing, it's not like anyone ever sat down and watched 12 episodes of anything in the same day. Right? Yeah, I remember as a kid consuming all of the Star Wars tie-in materials because I went and saw Star Wars once. I mm-hmm. wanted more Star Wars, but there was no VHS tapes of it. It didn't come out. It didn't get re-released for another year or two. I had to wait for Empire Strikes Back, so I would read the comic book adaptation. I read the novel version, and when it's based on your memory, I had this whole different idea of what Star Wars was by the second time I saw it. I had this weird amalgamation of the comic book tweaks of the... NPR radio adaptation of the novelization <laughs> by Alan Dean Foster, I think. And I had a little bit of disappointment the second time I saw the Star Wars film, even as a kid. I think they played it at the library, and it was maybe like 1980, like right before Empire Strikes Back came out, because it was far more epic in your memory. And there's something interesting about being able to just um, combine things and have this modular continuity that I think uh, appeals to me about Doctor Who. I think I'd I'd be remiss if I didn't say, when it comes to adaptation, I think the gold standard of adaptations is always role-playing game designers. Uh, The the best ones who adapt. I know that licensed material is always a little bit kind of, people turn their nose up at it. Um, But some of the best ones... Uh, I'm thinking of like the Greg Kostickian Star Wars RPG or the Buffy and Angel RPG adaptations, the designer of which escapes me. But uh, the point being that you go through the original material and you're you're extracting the structural elements of it and you're understanding how the universe works and how that particular fictionality operates. Uh, back in the back when I was a kid, I, I played a lot of the James Bond RPG, which was... Oh, that uh, is such a great game. It, it's really, really good, and it was very different from uh, Dungeons & Dragons because, among other things, it had the concept of a hero point where you would generate hero points every now and then and you could spend them to do outlandish James Bondy things. So you had to husband the points a little bit it. You couldn't just spend them willy-nilly, but you could, you know, you'd do that ridiculous flip in Man with the Golden Gun, where you would never otherwise be able to do that in a Dungeons & Dragons game, because the roles simply wouldn't allow for it. But because the logic of the Bond movies did, the designer, again, whose name escapes me right now, was able to backfill that into the game. And so I think that uh, some of the best work, as far as adaptation goes, is from RPG designers. Sandy Peterson taking all of H.P. Lovecraft's stuff and distilling it into Call of Cthulhu. John Tynes and Dennis Deltwiller and those guys. I went straight to Star Wars, that, the one yeah. that you first brought up, that West End Star Wars game is great. And my understanding is a lot of the stuff that they made up became canonical for Lucasfilm because they they looked at what little pieces of 
an entire universe they had and then built things that connected them all together in a sensible way. And it turns out that that is sensible. <laughs> and, the, and the people who are in charge of it are like, yeah, that looks like what the scaffolding is probably like. <laughs> let's, let's use that. That is such a great game. And It's almost as if Greg Kostikian is a more coherent artist than George yeah. Lucas. So who, who would have guessed? <laughs> this is my shocked face. <laughs> And for our fifth and final round, the randomizer, uh, we are going to talk about The Deadly Assassin. Jeff, you have never seen The Deadly Assassin before. No, never. Not not since this afternoon. (laughs) Or not (laughs) before this afternoon. What's even happening? (laughs) Well, this is kind of a new new thing for the show. The least knowledgeable person that we've had about the classic series on before was Shannon Custer. Yes. Which we did for our live show at the Bryant Lake Bowl. <laughs> uh, so we are in the in the mode of you're plumbing the depths of <laughs> ignorance now. <laughs> we, we we are the the Obi Wans of of this. We are the elders now to, <laughs> to to instruct you in the ways of classic Doctor Who. So, um, without saying anything about this episode's reception in fandom or its history within the program, what were your initial impressions? I thought that it was really interesting to see such a strongly serial TV show from that period, right? Because that is is completely common now. Uh, my friend Ken Height calls it the dire botchkoization of television, where you can't just watch one episode of anything because it ties into the one before it and it leaves track for the one after it. So it was interesting to see, and obviously this can't have been the only place that was happening, but I don't think of TV from this era as having that structure whatsoever. So that was interesting to see. I also thought that it was interesting how the main drama of each of those four parts was different, right? And the third one, the third part of this, we go to a completely new thing. It's like it's almost of a completely different genre of the other parts of that. And there's also a political thing that's going on that could, if it came out last week, be commentary on the current political situation. And so those were the three things that I thought were were very interesting about this particular story arc, I guess. Have you ever seen any of the classic series no. before this? It's a it's a weird one to start with, and I admit that we were a little perverse in assigning this one to you, but we knew, uh, as you said, that you're going to design a master expansion for mm-hmm. Time Clash, and so this is central to the master's identity, this particular adventure. Uh, it's very different from every other classic Doctor Who in a number of ways. So yeah, from from trivial things like there's an opening text crawl that talks about the Time Lords of Gallifrey did such and such. This is a few years before Star Wars, by the way, so right. that's um, that's a little unusual, but that's completely new. That's uh, has never been seen before or since on Doctor Who. It was only here. They had a voiceover in Paul McGann's movie. They didn't have a scroll, but they, he, he did some exposition, but other than that... It's also the only classic Doctor Who serial where he does not have a companion. I read that when I was reading the background on it after I got done with it, and I thought that that was interesting also. And I don't even know that that's something that I noticed while watching it if I had not been reading about it and yeah. had something else foreground that. Well, I, don't, I don't miss companions in this well, Because story, he yeah. gets pseudo-companions like Spandrel and, uh, is it Engen? Engen. Engen. I yeah. love Engen so <laughs> They're much. awesome. They would make great companions. <laughs> also, the viewer, because Tom occasionally turns to us... <laughs> 
and <laughs> exposits yeah. at the viewer, which is yeah. which a, is a little bit indulgent, but. Uh, also, uh, we talked about Robert Holmes. Robert Holmes was the writer of this particular episode. He was the script editor on this period of Doctor mm-hmm. Who and had been involved uh, since way back in the second Doctor days. He's one of the people who made the biggest stamp on classic Doctor Who, and he did it in part by just kind of doing whatever the hell he wanted. Uh, up to this point, the Time Lords we had heard of and we had seen on a few occasions, but they were, for the most part, these godlike entities who intervened in the doctor's life and made things challenging for him. There was one episode called the third doctor uh, the three doctors where they were under threat, but part of the effectiveness of them being under threat was that they were supposed to be these godlike entities and that was you know, what the drama of the episode was. But here we have this decaying Vatican-like society with cardinals and houses and smarmy people. Yeah, and then when you throw in the matrix and the almost psychedelic side of that and then some of the comedy, it's sort of like the Manchurian Candidate written by Philip K. Dick and P.G. Woodhouse, you know? (laughs) It's like, there's just a lot of bizarreness here. Yeah, I mean, I was like, you know, looking at the Time Lords in this story, it's like, it was kind of amazed how they seem to evoke every old totalitarian state. I mean, it it seems like the Vatican, it seems like ancient Rome at times, it seems like, you know, upper-class England at times. It, there was even a weird point when it kind of seemed like, like an American overreach thing, like they almost directly quote the Constitution at one point. And yeah. the CIA. And the CIA. <laughs> yep. the I assumed that that was a running joke. The CIA, that's mm-hmm. where it occurs. Okay. Right here. Uh, that's also something that uh, the the FASA Doctor Who RPG writers picked up on. You're, you will be agents of the CIA in that old FASA RPG. But that's it's one joke from Robert Holmes, and it's right here, and it's never referred to ever again in the televised series. It's a big thing in the audios, right? Mm-hmm. We certainly do it a lot in the audios. Yeah, so this becomes the new version of Gallifrey. This was really, when we were talking about adaptation, this is really kind of a reset button. So what was the contemporary reaction to that? Whereas before this episode aired, they were godlike figures we had never seen, and now there's a guy with a funny headdress who is ostensibly the same thing. Yeah, it was not... And, of course, I speak as someone who was not part of British uh, Doctor Who fandom when it aired, but my understanding is that it wasn't very positive. They thought that this was kind of a, a lampoon, that it, uh, it deflated the idea of the Time Lords a lot, and that the story itself was a little creaky in parts. Uh, it was also criticized for the violence it was, it was, in the Matrix yeah. sequence, particularly. And I mean, for Doctor Who, if you haven't watched a lot of classic Doctor Who, this stands out for violence. And it's not just the violence. Doctor Who is very violent. Yeah, it, this is say, unusually. Well, what's interesting direct. about the Matrix is you almost have this subtext where we're in this virtual reality. The Doctor leaves Doctor Who, and the violence in this alternate reality becomes more real-world violence. Never 
up to that point in the classic series, have you maybe ever seen the doctor bleed? He's sweating. When he picks up something in the in the Matrix, you see that his knuckles are bleeding, probably really bleeding from Tom Baker doing all this stuff. Um, that was a really interesting shot, I thought, when he was building the little blowgun thing is when yeah. you get that shot of his hand and it looks like it's all gnarly and messed up and dirty and everything. Yeah, yeah. So And, and he needs water. Like Suddenly he's like a real being instead never, of this sanitized the, superhero. You've never seen the doctor in in like survival mode like this no where he doesn't have technology at his disposable at his at, at his disposable at his disposal yeah and he's and, totally willing to be violent in there he's using blow darts grenade yeah. traps tricks the guy into setting himself on fire and, and i guess him. i guess there was practical considerations for like tom baker not wearing the scarf but there's some kind of weird symbolism where he's you, you just see him wearing that sort of renaissance blouse mm-hmm. thing you know, like he's more stripped down, and mm-hmm. yeah, there's a sense that he takes the gloves off uh, in in a metaphorical way because it is a simulation. He knows it's a simulation, and so he's gonna do the grenade trap or poison yeah. the guy because it's it's not real. But. Yeah, there's story reasons for it, but still, on a visceral yeah. level, it, it had to be shocking at the time. And even rewatching it, I've seen it a lot of times. Every time, I'm like, wow. <laughs> this is pretty gritty. I mean, not to harp on the point, but this is very extreme, even for this period of Doctor Who. The the horror of it, that episode three with the evil surgeon and the North by Northwest plane and the guy in the gas mask with the horse dying and the evil clown under the ground that the Doctor just covers right back up. We're just going to pretend we didn't well, see that guy. Well, yeah, the uh, goth drowning the Doctor cliffhanger was frequently brought up as, like, the most trauma-inducing thing. And like it Doctor Who edited did. out on rebroadcasts yeah. after that. It was restored for the VHS and DVD release. But, yeah, it's quite a cliffhanger to see your hero, like, held underwater. I mean, you know, tame in, in like, a post-24 era here uh, <laughs> from an American point of view, but uh, for the whole spectrum of classic series, it's uh, intense. So, of course, this is pre-The Matrix. The Matrix. Right. So there, there was a lot of retroactive, like, oh, they stole that from Doctor Who, although I'm sure the Wachowski siblings had never seen this, and uh, <laughs> it's just a case of convergent evolution. Uh, but it's kind of fun for us old Doctor Who fans to, um, uh, to note, as well as the fact that the Matrix and all of these other elements of Gallifrey appear over and over again in Doctor Who from this period on. The, the sheer level of invention in this episode, I mean... Robert Holmes invents so much that is going to be used again, and the whole production invents so much, from the look of the Time Lords, from uh, the 12 Lives is first introduced in this episode. Uh, obviously, we've mentioned The Matrix. There's almost too many things to count. I think it might be the first... Is it the first time it's referenced as a Type 40, or was that earlier? Uh, the, it was I probably Robert the... Holmes who named it, because it's a very Robert Holmes idea. Yeah. Um, it's a new master, too. Um, so pertinent to uh, to your game that you're going to make. Uh, previously, we had only ever seen the Master as Roger Delgado, who was the Moriarty to John Pertwee's third Doctor, mm-hmm. and uh, they went round and round again many many times. And Roger Delgado was a beautiful, elegant man, always totally put together and kind of a suave adversary. And the actor himself died. 
before the end of the Third Doctor era, so there was never any resolution to anything about the Master. That was years before the Deadly Assassin aired. So out of nowhere, and relying on the vague memories that people have of seeing John Pertwee's era, there's someone who shows up who has decayed because he can no longer regenerate. Also, by the way, i got to talk about the clever joke, because Goth calls him Master, like all of the other plenty of bad guy servants have done in Doctor Who over the years. There's tons of flunkies who are like, yes, Master, we're going to do this. But there's no reason on Earth. The Master. It doesn't look or act anything like the guy that we've seen. So the fact that it's it's a weird double-buried joke that, oh, it is actually the Master now. And he hates the Doctor. He's sadistic. He's going to try to kill him in all these horrible ways. Uh, And the only... And we start to get hints of who it really is when the, the little doll bodies start showing up because that was an old technique of Roger Delgado. And it's an interesting reveal of the master. I, I, every time I see it, I'm surprised they don't save it for a cliffhanger. Yeah. It's they, just in conversation. Yeah. He says, it's the master. There's not a sting. There's not a bit of melodrama. And it's an interesting change in tone for the doctor and the master's relationship because uh, with the Delgado master, there was always this sort of almost brotherly rivalry, right? Um, they admired each other. It was Holmes and Moriarty. Whereas here, they hate each other. And the Doctor's appraisal of the Master is not warm at all. He's a fiend. He thinks very little of him. And this is going to kind of be the relationship that the Doctor and the Master have for the second half of the classic series. They kind of bring mm-hmm. back the sort of um, love-hate relationship in the new series. But it resets so many things that are going to just go forward. It's really impressive. That's an insane amount of lore to invent in one. <laughs> no. I mean, like for any show, right? That is yeah. an extremely difficult thing to do in a show that has continuity. Even in the modern day when you maybe have a giant writing staff who are all collaborating to do that. And, and back then, right, that's, that is just a, that's a feat to yeah. make up that much stuff and apply it back to a continuity and then use it to establish so much stuff going forward. I think that's awesome. It's the Wild West. They, they didn't have a Bible for the show. It was just whoever was in charge at the time would do the best they could. And when you had wildly inventive people like Bob Holmes, then you get shows like this. Yeah. The other thing I love about Deadly Assassin is it's super dark, but it is just laugh out loud funny, too. I mean, the vaporization without representation is against the Constitution. Best line in the whole thing right there. I started writing down my favorite lines and pretty soon I was just transcribing the episode and I I gave up. It seems like there should be a schoolhouse rock (laughs) on that line. But I think this is my first exposure to something like this of the super old society that is just plain forgotten huge amounts of things. I mean, like supposedly they have like all the knowledge in. You, you can have, and they forgot, like, oh, these are devices for manipulating this black hole. We have imprisoned. And I forget that. We forgot all about that. I forget that every time I watch this. Really? I because, because from there on in, they, they tweak that idea that the Time Lords understand all their deep, dark secrets, and they're guarding them and hiding them. And mm-hmm. this, this is the episode that suggests that they're so stagnant decayed. and decayed yeah. that they've even forgotten their own history and the mm-hmm. doctor has to remind them of their history. I think that's really intriguing. He has to dig into it. He has well, to decipher like, the, the Well, Angan, whose job is to like keep records, I guess. 
like, oh, I just gave it to him. It only has ceremonial value. You're like, do you know what you just gave him? It, my head canon is that the Celestial Intervention Agency knows all this stuff. Yeah. It always has. <laughs> They've selectively assassinated mm-hmm. and otherwise mind-blanked the people who would... Uh, <laughs> but the opening scroll seems to suggest that this is the story that will change Gallifrey forever. And so you, you can retroactively put that continuity on it. That this story woke this memory in the Time Lords and maybe is sort of what got them to sit up and pay attention and lead to the Time War. Every time I watch it, I'm constantly amazed at the the wonderful, just different modes of of tonalities that Robert Holmes is able to bring to the different types of writing that he does. Uh, again, vaporization without representation, representation I talked about, but but you've got the political cynicism of Barusa, where he says things like, all presidents are faced with difficult decisions. It is by their decisions that they are judged as a way of attacking Chancellor Goth to the sly conversation between um, uh, Elgin and uh, Spandrel, or the doctor and Spandrel. Is this what happens to the dead when they... Uh, put him on the uh, the matrix slab. Uh, they're usually unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> to the doctor in the matrix, after he's been shot by the biplane, saying, "I deny this reality. The reality is a computation matrix," which is, by the way, something I frequently said to myself back in uh, back in the day <laughs> over the years when I didn't want something to uh, to actually be true. I deny this reality. And D and D terms, he's attempting to disbelieve. That was really funny because I immediately thought of the illusionist mechanics from yes. the very first edition of D&D and went back to check the times that both of those things were written. And that's super close in time, right? That's really, really interesting. Yeah, they're drawing... Well, here they're drawing on science fiction backgrounds and Gary and, and, and Dave Arneson were drawing on the fantasy stuff, but it's still sort of in the atmosphere, right? They're, they're again drawing on these previous genre stories to try to uh, try to make it not occur. Mm-hmm. And my favorite line, of course, from Deadly Assassin is the Matrix is reading out neither flux nor wither nor change their state in any measure, which is like something out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Yeah. And But if you look it up, Bob Holmes just wrote it. And yep. this is just another example of his multifaceted ability to, uh, to write in different tonalities. Yeah. I'm honestly particularly impressed with just the design in this. Uh, the, you know, it, it introduces those giant collar headdress things that the Time Lords wear, and I picked which up, is super iconic. Yeah, and I picked up this time what's kind of interesting is that they were supposed to be absurd in this story because Runcible even says that you rarely see them wear. This is totally <laughs> ceremonial, and, and, and other people picked up on that, and every time they go to Gallifrey, everyone's like, I'm wearing this awkward, huge thing on my head. <laughs> Well, 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 like, you know, and, and again, like, the, the, the decadent society that's falling apart, like, when the, the doctor swipes that one Time Lord's ceremonial robes, like, oh, I could have sworn I just hung my robe up right over here. Like, yeah. Just that's, like they're, like, senile. They're like, I, mean, I don't know like, where my robe is. P.G. Woodhouse. There, It could be the drones yeah. club that the doctor is yeah. breaking into. It's like a Kelvin Hatley character on stage. <laughs> yeah. It was weird to inflict on you, Jeff, because it's, it's so unusual. Hopefully you, well, you enjoyed can it. Tell me, it's all like that. I- <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, this is the least violent of all the early Doctor Who's. 
It's the most, see, the most conventional. You should see some of those first Doctor stories where people just get beheaded and <laughs> fountains of blood shoot out of the stump of their neck. It's, it's like a hysterical. It's like a Lucio Fulci movie. <laughs> Guts just pouring everywhere. <laughs> Well, that's our podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you, Jeff Tidball, for being our guests. It was really great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me down. And thank you for the... You guys don't know this, but Jeff brought us all copies of his game. I know. <laughs> so awesome. Yeah, I was very pleased. He's thank our you. new best friend. Time thank you very much. and Fast and Fasten. <laughs> Which is a... <laughs> I love this. It's a Cthulhuid racing game. <laughs> So thank you very much. Uh, You bet. Next time, we will be talking about Doom Coalition Volume 3. That's the big finish 8th Doctor box set. Uh, We've been discussing all the Doom Coalition box sets. Uh, We will also be doing um, another one of our improv structures called Interview with an Ice Warrior. Yeah, you'll want to hear that. And finally, in the randomizer round, we will be talking about Planet... Of evil. So please, tune in for that. Right, not Planet of the Dead? Just, hey now. <laughs> Just let me do the sign off before we start fighting. <laughs> uh, until then, I'm Joshua. I'm Kelvin. And I'm Pat. And we're saying, Get off my world. My, I like, keep wanting to talk about things that aren't Doctor Who when stuff like this comes out. Just, Calvin, like out. Just, <laughs> general topic. Stand like in the that. corner. I know it's terrible.